God, if you would, to the gospel according to Luke chapter 6. You'll find that on page 1096 in the Pew Bible. Luke 6. And I want to read the verses 1 through 11. Luke 6, verses 1 through 11. This is the law of God. The Word of God, sorry. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life? or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You might know that the term Sabbath is a Hebrew term that translates into rest. Well, Sabbath observance, that is, how to honor one day in the week for the Lord, has certainly been put to rest in modern Christianity. Very few within the evangelical church think of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath as anything significant. The first day of the week is like any other day of the week. All the days are the Lord's days, they say. And even among those who honor the Sabbath, who think that it is a day set apart for the worship of God, even those people do not often discuss or reflect on how we can best honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so it's helpful for us to then observe the sparring between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath day here in Luke's gospel, because what we see there will help us to reflect upon our understanding, not only on the Sabbath day in particular, though it would be good for us to do that, but also our understanding of the law of God in general. How should we understand God's law? And I think as we look together at 
the Pharisees and that Jesus' teaching as the Lord of the Sabbath, we will find some helpful advice and insights for us to reflect on and to examine our own attitude with. The first thing I want to highlight for you is what the discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees was not about. It was not about whether the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, continued to have binding validity in the new covenant. It is helpful for us to understand that the first instance of the Sabbath day is not found, first of all, in what Moses gave to the people of Israel. If it were first found there, we might think that it could be as negligible for us as the food laws regarding clean and unclean food. But we first find a reference to the Sabbath day in Genesis chapter 2. There we read that God created all things in six days, and on the seventh day God finishes work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so we see that the Sabbath is a, as theologians say, a creation ordinance. It's not a mosaic legislation in the first place, but it is at the, uh, the very headwaters of human existence. It is as old as the world itself is. God set one day apart in seven as holy to himself. Now, of course, we do find it in the Mosaic legislation. But it's interesting that the first place that we find it in Moses' writing is not in Exodus 20 and the fourth commandment. We actually find it first in Exodus 16. There the Lord was giving instructions to his people about the collection of manna. And they were to collect manna every day sufficient for that day's needs, except on the sixth day they were to collect double, because on the seventh day no manna would be sent from heaven. And the reason no manna came on the seventh day is because that day was, Exodus 16, 23, a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And so on that day there was to be no collection. And that's why it's significant that when the Sabbath comes up in the Ten Commandments, it doesn't come up as something new, brand new, as if it had never been discussed before. No, God knew that it was a creation ordinance. He knew that He had spoken to the Israelites about it in Exodus 16. And that's why He says in the Fourth Commandment that they were to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That six days are for labor, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest for the Lord and for his people. And so there was no discussion among the Jesus and the Pharisees about the binding validity of the Sabbath day, because it is a creation ordinance. It is part of God's moral law, and God himself never changes. 
That's why the Ten Commandments, in, in distinction from some of the food laws and the unclean laws and the laws regarding leprosy, the Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone by the finger of God, and the tablets were placed in the Ark of the Covenant because God was underscoring that these Ten Commandments, these ten words, are the recapitulation of his moral law that he had given to Adam in the beginning and had written on the hearts of humanity, the Ten Commandments, including the Fourth Commandment, continues to be binding. And so it is no more right for us to discard Sabbath observance than it is for us to discard the command regarding adultery or covetousness or stealing The Ten Commandments hang together. They are all an expression of the holy character of God, binding upon all people in all ages and all places from the beginning of the world until the end. There was no discussion about that. So that when Jesus says in Luke 6 that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, He's not saying that because He's the Lord of the Sabbath, He can just make the fourth commandment no longer legal and binding in the life of the people of God. If he were to have done that, then certainly he would have said so much in so many words. The discussion was not about the ongoing validity of the fourth commandment. Jesus and the Pharisees both understood that the fourth commandment continued in effect in the new covenant as well. So what was it? Well, basically, the attitude, it it was about the attitude to the law of God, the posture that one has towards God and His commandments. And you see that both in the way that Jesus speaks about the Sabbath commandment in these two passages of Scripture, and you see it in the Pharisees' actions in these passages of Scripture. So, first of all, how is the attitude to the law of God expressed by someone who is a lover of God and a lover of God's law? And, of course, Jesus is the preeminent lover of God and the lover of God's law. Jesus was sinless. He had come to do the will of His heavenly Father, And no one could accuse him of any wrong. And the only way they could accuse him of any wrong is if they could find something in his life that contradicted the Ten Commandments because that was the expression of God's law. And Jesus was no breaker of God's commandments. Neither was he a breaker of the Fourth Commandment. Jesus kept the Sabbath day holy as God had obligated his people to do. So what's Jesus' attitude to the law? Well, you see it in the first story. Jesus' disciples were in a grain field, and they had plucked some grain and had uh, threshed it with their hands and then had ate it, and then the Pharisees are there. And they accuse the disciples, saying, what are you doing, or sorry, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? And it's very interesting just at the beginning to notice this. 
that it's the Pharisees who accuse the disciples, but it is our Lord Jesus who answers the Pharisees and defends the disciples against those accusations. That's part and parcel, of course, of who Jesus is. Satan is the great accuser of the brethren, and it's the Lord Jesus who always defends his people. So what was the criticism of the Pharisees? Well, they thought that what the disciples were doing was wrong to do, not because it was wrong to snack in people's fields. That was legitimate. Children, if you were to go to Sobeys and to walk around the store and take a grape here and a nut there and a chocolate there just to taste it, of course, that would be considered stealing. But if you were in, in Jesus' day and you were walking through the fields and you helped yourself to someone's grain or corn, that would be okay. Snacking was allowed. You just couldn't harvest your neighbor's field. So the accusation was not that they were snacking in someone else's field. The problem, the Pharisees said, is that they were snacking on the Lord's day. And they were actually working because they were harvesting with their hands, they were threshing with their hands, and then they were eating the food. Now, what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus responds by pointing them to the story in 1 Samuel 21. Some of you might know that story. David is fleeing from Saul. He and his men are very hungry, and so they show up at the tabernacle and ask for food. Well, there's no food there except the showbread that was to be placed on the table in the most holy place every week. Now, that bread was reserved for the priests, That's what Jesus says there, that uh, it is not lawful for any of the priests to eat. But the interesting thing was, is that David and his men were given the bread to eat, and they ate it. And nowhere is David reprimanded for doing so. Now, what's the point here? Well, if you were a Pharisee, Calvin says, this is what you should think that men who are hungry ought rather to die than to satisfy their hunger if it meant breaking one of the commandments. But that's not Jesus' perspective at all. Jesus would say that the law was never given to kill people. The law was given for people's blessing, for their life, for their sustenance. And so, yes, it was contrary to the ceremonial law. Only the priests could eat it. But in a situation like this, of course God didn't forbid the ceremonial law to be broken. In fact, it was keeping the law, that is, the law of love to one's neighbor, to eat of the showbread, because the law of God was never given to harm. It was always given to further life and to enhance it and to refresh it. And you see this again in the second story. Jesus is in the synagogue, and the Pharisees are in the synagogue too. They're watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath day so that they might accuse him. Now, Jesus understood what was going on, and notice how he takes the initiative with this man with the withered hand. I mean, Jesus could have done nothing. He could have uh, went up to the man after the Sabbath services were over and say, "Uh, stretch out your hand, man, and I want to heal you. 
He didn't need to make this a public demonstration, but he does because he's jealous for a proper understanding of God's law. And so he says to the man, come and stand here. And the man rose and stood there. And then Jesus asked this question of all the Pharisees and all who are gathered there in the synagogue. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Now, the save life or to destroy it was, of course, a barb at the Pharisees who were even then plotting how they might destroy the life of Jesus. But the other question, is the Sabbath a day for doing good or for doing harm, was about this man. And their silence is conclusive. Of course the Sabbath day was a day for doing good. Who could dispute that? Well, the Pharisees certainly could. Because they thought, uh, yes, if if a man's injury is life-threatening, well, of course you have to do something. But only do something to maintain his life. You wouldn't want to heal him completely if that was unnecessary. You just fix him up good enough so that when the Sabbath is over, you can actually heal him. Because to do anything else would be to work on the Sabbath day. And certainly a man with a withered hand, well, he could last till Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. There was no need for Jesus to, to heal him on the Sabbath day, to do work. That was their thinking. And Jesus knew that was their thinking. And so he says to the man, stand up publicly, and then he looks around at the Pharisees, not too pleased with them. And then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and his hand was restored. What's the point? The Sabbath day is given for blessing. It's to do good. It's not to do harm. It's not even to maintain people in their misery, to leave them in their misery. The Sabbath day is a day for celebration, a day for joy, a day of gladness, a day of doing things that bless people rather than doing things that harm people. You can see that this is the theme that Jesus is expressing in all of these encounters with the Pharisees in the last few chapters or passages of Scripture. Because what Jesus is doing is really defending the character of his father. The Pharisees misunderstood who God was. Even as Satan tries to deceive us as to who God is. Satan wants us to to think that God is narrow, that he's tight-fisted, that he's stingy and parsimonious and and doesn't want you to be happy in any way, that he's just there looking down at you critically all the time. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not who our Father is. He is generous. He's large-hearted. He's open-handed. He loves to bless his people. He, he, he organizes and orchestrates all things for the, the maximum happiness of his children. That's why Jesus celebrates and eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. That's why Jesus says that now that the bridegroom is here, life is a life of feasting, not fasting. And that's why Jesus says the Sabbath was never given to make people miserable. It was given to be a blessing because God is a generous God. And if God gives the Sabbath, 
then the Sabbath must be received as a good thing, as a gift to be cherished and loved, not as a burden to make it onerous on people like the Pharisees were doing. No, the Sabbath was a gift of a generous God, and it should be received as such. You see, the Pharisees were legalists. Now, it's, it's a term that's thrown around a lot in our culture, Christian culture, legalists. What is a legalist? Well, a legalist is someone who thinks that they can earn God's favor by their obedience. That was the Pharisees in spades. It's not that they didn't believe in grace. Oh, yeah. They would speak about grace, but they would spell it differently. Grace was God helps those who help themselves. You do your best, and he'll top it up. That was their understanding of grace. You really had to impress God by your obedience. Remember, the Pharisee in Luke 18, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I give tithes of all that I have. I fast twice a week. Because his standing before God depended on his obedience. That's a legalist. And then a legalist is someone who adds to God's law, who thinks that uh, perhaps God wasn't as strict that his, as he should have been, and uh, they, they, that there were things that, that could be better said. And again, that was the Pharisees. Just remember in the prayer, I fast twice a week. Well, that wasn't commanded by God. No, but that was a Pharisaical command. And, and similarly with the Sabbath, they had all kinds of laws regarding the Sabbath. So here's the Sabbath law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and, and do all your work. And then the Pharisees would build a hedge around that Sabbath law with all kinds of other laws. So that uh, before you could break the Sabbath law, you had to break all these other laws. Now you can understand why people do that. I, I, I know someone who who, when he's traveling on business and is in a hotel room, he, he doesn't turn the television on. And it's not because it would be wrong for him to turn the television on, but he knows that if he turns the television on, he might be tempted to see things that he ought not to see. So his response is, no television when I'm alone in a hotel room. Now that's wise for that fellow. But if he were now to say that no one ought to turn on a television when they're traveling alone, that would be to make his own rule equal to God's rule. God's rule is you shouldn't see anything sexually immoral. His rule was, I'm not going to turn the television on at all. And those are two different rules. He may decide to keep both as an expression of his desire to keep God's law, but he may not enforce that and impress that on anyone else. Well, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They had all kinds of laws. They knew that work was forbidden on the Sabbath day, but then they would define work. They had um, 39 definitions of work spread over six subcategories, and some of it was just plain silly. You couldn't untie a knot on the Sabbath day if it took you two hands to do it. That's work. But if you could untie it with one hand, that's not work. 
That was permissible. And they had all kinds of these laws. And Jesus was objecting to the pharisaical incrustations, the additions to the law of God. He was not criticizing God's law itself, but only the pharisaical additions to God's law. The Pharisees were legalists. And their legal heart was evidenced in their behavior. They had no real understanding of grace and of the generosity of God and of a gospel that, as Wycliffe says, makes you want to sing and dance and shout for joy. They had no understanding of that. And it's so clearly demonstrated. Just look at the Pharisees in this passage, how critical they are. Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields, and the Pharisees are there lurking, spying. What's he going to do? Is he going to break the law? Is he going to fail to keep what God wants us to keep? They're just there with malicious eye looking for Jesus and his disciples to fall. Or look at them in the synagogue. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And verse 7, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They're just wanting to see what he's doing so they can jump on him and pounce on him and say, told you so, he's a lawbreaker. And the reason they were so critical of other people and the reason people are always critical of other people is because they don't understand the gospel and the generosity of God. They, they tend to think of God as, as just like them, who's, who's there looking out to see if you're making any infractions, and if you do, watch out, because He'll pounce on you and crush you. But they don't understand that God is gracious and compassionate, big-hearted, that yes, He wants us to obey His law. But he's not there with a critical eye to accuse you. That's Satan's work. But you see, the Pharisees never understood grace. They just understood their relationship with God in terms of obligations. And you were good if you met the obligations. And you were bad if you didn't. So how do you assess Jesus' character? Well, you watch him. Is he going to meet the obligations or is he going to, to break them? Will he measure up to the standard, or will he fail? That's the question. And critical people are always like that. They criticize others to make themselves look good and can only think about other people in their relationship in terms of do they measure up or don't they? That's the heart of a legalist. It's not the heart of a man or a woman or boy or girl gripped by the gospel. Secondly, their legalist heart shows up in their harshness. They didn't care if the disciples were hungry. Suck it up, buttercup. Eat tomorrow. That's, uh, that's uh, too, too um, self-caring. You, you have more concern about uh, your own satisfaction and pleasure than you do the law of God. 
And, and then look, about, look at what they do with this man with the withered hand. There's, there's no, no concern whatsoever that this man has a withered hand and it impacts his life. He can't work. He's the object of, of scorn and superstition and probably accused by others of having somehow sinned. Otherwise, this tragedy wouldn't have happened to him. But they don't care about the man himself. He's just a decoy. He's just there to trap Jesus. They're harsh. They're unkind. They're ungenerous. They have no compassion. And why is that? Because the God they serve, the legalist God, is not a God of compassion and kindness and generosity. He's harsh. Whatever you get, you deserve to have it because you're bad. And so they were critical. They were harsh. And then their obedience is selective. And selective in this way, that obedience for a legalist is generally external. They would watch how people kept the Sabbath day. They would watch what Jesus would do with regard to this man. But they weren't too concerned that while they were watching Jesus, there was this accusatory heart within them. Or that after Jesus restored the man, it doesn't occur to them that they are sinning by being filled with fury and conniving with others what they might do to Jesus. And the idea there is not that they might congratulate Jesus or bless Jesus. It's what they might do to destroy Jesus. That's irrelevant. As long as they're doing the right things externally, everything else is okay. That's why Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount uh, He says, listen, the law is not just about externals. You shall not commit adultery or you shall not kill. Well, yeah, you ought not to kill anyone, but neither ought you in your heart to harbor hatred for a brother or sister. That was lost. That's always lost on the legalists because they externalize the law of God and they are selective about which laws are important. And the important ones are usually the laws that they keep, and the rest are not so significant. That legalistic spirit often flourishes in Reformed churches in this way, perhaps even especially in Reformed churches, because we have such an emphasis on the importance of right doctrine of thinking biblically. And we have our confessions that undergird our understanding of Scripture. And it's right to think right. God doesn't give us a Bible so that we can be careless about theology. But often in theological discussions, you'll notice that those who are concerned about orthodoxy and right thinking have no problem slandering a brother gossiping about him, misinterpreting what he says to their own advantage and to his disadvantage. And it's not good. The law of God should not be externalized. It addresses not just our outward actions, but addresses our hearts. 
I've been asked by some why I don't always read the Ten Commandments on the Lord's Day mornings, and this is a good place for me to tell you why that is. It's not because of any dislike for the law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. Of course not. It is the law of our God. But it is at times, for instance, to remind us that the law of God is not just a matter of externalities. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And that the problem is not just actions. That's why I sometimes read from Mark 7. You'll know that passage. And Jesus in Mark 7 says that you must understand that all disobedience So evil thoughts, sexual immorality, the breaking of the seventh, the breaking of the the eighth, theft, the breaking of the sixth, murder, the breaking of the seventh, adultery, the breaking of the tenth, coveting, that all of these disobediences is not in the first place a matter of what you do with your life, but it's a matter of the heart. All these evil things, Jesus says, comes from within and they defile a person. A legalist never gets this. A legalist thinks that it's only external actions that matter. And as long as I can tick the boxes, I've done that, I haven't done that, haven't killed anyone, I haven't slept with another man's wife, as long as I have done all these things, I'm good to go. That's the Pharisee's understanding but it's not the right understanding of one who loves God and loves God's law. So how should we, in closing, how should we understand the law of God? What should be our attitude and our approach to it? And I want to say five things as we close this morning. The first thing is that we are not saved by law We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this comes out in a a lovely way in the second passage that I read this morning. This man with a withered hand who needed restoration, who uh, experienced the curse of sin, that's why his hand was withered, of course. But it wasn't him being in the Sabbaths, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day that cured him. It was receiving Jesus that did so. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand, and and realize that this man's hand was withered. It could not be stretched out. Jesus says, stretched out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. And your life will never be right before God, will never be acceptable to him, by all your actions, all your doings and your not doings. It won't work. Your life is only made right with God when you take the Lord Jesus at His word. When He says, stretch out your hand, you recognizing your own need of Him and trusting in the power of His grace when you stretch out your hand. It's when you understand your sin and know that the Lord Jesus is the only one who can reconcile you to a holy God, and He says to me, to you, come unto me, and you come. 
and he says to you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the law that will save you. It's the gospel that will save you, the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. In fact, your repeated failures to obey the law should remind you of that, and the design of the law in part is to remind you of that so that you would embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as sinners and trust in his reconciling work on the cross where he in your place condemned stood and sealed your pardon with his blood. It is the gospel that saves, not the law. Secondly, the law is a gift of God. We need to have that proper perspective on the law. I think if you were to speak to our children that they often find uh, the commandments of their parents somewhat onerous. Why can't we do this? They do it. Why is he allowed to do that? We're not allowed to do that. Why are there so many rules? That's what we often hear from our children. But that's what God often hears from us. Why can't we do what we want to do? And God very kindly and graciously says, listen, my dear child, what do you think about me? You think I'm harsh? You think I'm cruel? You think I'm giving you these laws just to make your life miserable? Why would you think that of me? Have you not experienced my generosity, my grace, my kindness, and the smile of my love upon you? Yes, we have. Well, then what makes you think that when I give you the law, I'm doing it to harm you or to be a pest in your life? Of course not. Law is good. The law is a blessing. We should receive it as a gift. We should cherish it. And even the fourth commandment, which is, of course, the command that has the most controversy in Reformed and evangelical circles, even the fourth commandment is a blessing to remember one day in seven as a day for the Lord is a grace. He didn't have to give it to us, but he loves to give it to us because he loves to give good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. The law is a blessing. Third, obey the law. Be scrupulous in obeying the law. Look at your life and see whether it measures up to God's law in all of its parts. Don't pick and choose. This I will obey. This I won't. But be very careful to honor God. Make it your aim to please Him. Don't be careless or casual or think, well, it doesn't really matter if I sin because God will forgive me anyway. That's not the proper attitude either to the law or to the gospel. Christ has redeemed you so that you would not sin. He has redeemed you from sin so that the totality of your life would be offered up as a sacrifice of praise to God. So examine that. Your attitude towards money and wealth, the way you treat your brothers and sisters, what you're doing with regard to the seventh commandment. Examine the totality of your life. Examine even what you do, what you're going to do this afternoon on on the Lord's Day. Does this please God? Does this measure up to what he wants me to do? Is this what he calls me to do on this day? And it's not legalism to be careful to obey God's law. 
That's, that's what you'll be accused of. Why are you so tight and legalistic and so narrow? Why are you so punctilious about all the details? God's a God of grace, you know. You're under law, not grace. No, it's not legalism. It's my God has redeemed me so that I might honor him. So how can I best honor my Savior? So obey the law. Fourth, distinguish between the law and the application of the law. Now, this is an important point, and there's a difference, of course, between what God says and how you apply that to your life. So, so think, for instance, I can show you with the sixth commandment, uh, you shall not kill. So, in the sixth commandment, you shall not kill, is the command, you shall love your neighbor. You shall not harm your neighbor, you shall do good to your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor. Now, here's the question. What does that mean to love my neighbor? Does it mean that every time someone asks me for money on the streets, I must give them money? Who knows? I can't tell you that. The Bible doesn't tell you that. Or what does it mean with with regard to war? I'm to love my neighbor. Can I shoot him in combat if his nation rises up against my nation? That's a question that you have to ask. You have to wrestle through. What does loving your neighbor mean in the context of war? Or the greatest act of love, of course, that you could show to any human being is to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving grace. Does that mean that every time you see someone on the street, you have to buttonhole them and say, do you know if you're going to die where you're going to be, whether you're going to be in heaven or in hell, and let me tell you about Jesus. Do you have to do that every time, sometime, most of the time? Like, what does it mean to love your neighbor in the context of sharing the gospel? Well, those, are, those are questions that the Bible doesn't answer for you. You have, to, you have to figure those out on your own. You've got to pray about it. You've got to think it through. You've got to read the Scripture. You've got to be saturated by the truth of God, and then you've got to think these things through. The law is quite simple, love your neighbor. But the application of the law is more difficult. And in fact, it will be more difficult. I mean, it's difficult, and it will be different for you than it will be for me, quite possibly, because of our different circumstances and situations. And so again, with the fourth commandment, we know that it's a a day for the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's set apart from the other days of the week. But what does that mean? What does it mean when you come home from worship? We know that it calls you to worship because it's a day of holy convocation. That's why the Lord gives us the Sabbath day. It's for our spiritual blessing so we can gather together to worship our great God and Savior. But what about this afternoon? What does it call you to do? Well, the Bible's not really explicit about that, doesn't it? It doesn't say you can't go for a walk, or if you do go for a walk, make sure that it's only 1.4 kilometers. That's what the Pharisees were doing, but the Bible doesn't say that. You have to determine those things yourself. But finally, here's the question. Love, who will be the best person that will understand the law and its application 
in your life. It's the one who is guided by love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. So let's take the fourth commandment. What may I do on the Lord's day? What may I not do? What must I do on the Lord's day? Who will answer those questions best? The person who wants as much of the day for himself, for his own pleasure, and for his own pursuits. The man who only wants to know what the bare minimum is so that he can do that and then be considered as having kept the law, will he answer it well? Or will it be the person who loves God and who loves the law of God, who knows that in the keeping of the law there is great reward, even when it calls for difficulty in my life, a man who, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, a woman who says that, who wants to do nothing else than to say to her Redeemer, not my will but your will be done. It's the boy or girl who wants to please the Lord because the Lord has been so kind to him. That's the person who will best answer the questions of the application of the law of God to our lives. It will never be the legalist. It will always be the lover of God and of his law. Love is the best guide. Well, may God give us grace so that we might rejoice in his redemption and run in all his commandments and say, oh, how love I your law. Let's pray together. Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we think about our attitude and our actions with regards to your law. We confess that they aren't always what they ought to be. And we pray that for the sake of your dear Son, you would forgive us our sins and that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, that we would be known as people who love your commandments, who delight in your law, who rejoice to obey you, who find your commandments not a burden but a joy. We pray that you would bless us and keep us. Keep us from every legalistic inclination, every attitude that uh, thinks of you as tight-fisted and harsh and cruel. Help us to understand the vastness of your grace, your massive generosity in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, let us uh, sing together.